Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. All right, 11 o'clock. You guys ready? <laughs> I love it. Let's dig in. Hey, I was out next last week, uh, for those who care. Um, I was... Uh, Away because I like to take the last week of the uh, year off just to, you know, enjoy Christmas. Uh, so thank you, Dr. David Olshan. I did watch. Uh, we just didn't uh, come. But it was good for us. We're at that weird stage of life now where we've got adult kids who are married. So we have to negotiate with the other in-laws, uh, which is uh, some of you have done that dance before. So I've been on both sides of it now when I was younger, having to figure out the in-law thing. Now the older, uh, having to figure out the in-law thing. So we had to share. And so we did a post-Christmas Christmas. And I don't know how you guys interact with your family uh, or even if you want to, but you got, you got to figure out, you know, like the stuff you're going to do together. So we talked about, do we like want to play games, watch movies? What do we want to do? And so what we decided to do this Christmas was we did some puzzles together. Uh, we had some friends who had given up on a 2,000-piece puzzle <laughs> And so they'd given it to us. And uh, we just spent uh, a lot of our time doing the puzzle. It was fun because it kind of fits amid everything. Uh, and then you can put some music on in the background. But then you're also, you're having small talk as you're sitting around the puzzle together. And, you know, as a family, that's something uh, mom and dad, we enjoy. And so got to know our kids a little bit more. But the one thing about six people trying to do a puzzle is you're all fighting for that box. You know? <laughs> I was like, hey, you didn't look at that box? You want to give me that box? How long have you been going to look? You know, so like the whole thing, you got to fight over the box thing. Um, and because you just can't figure out a puzzle. I'm sympathetic to anybody that's trying to do a puzzle not looking at the box, unless you've nailed it down to the few pieces that go in that one little place. But for me, I had like, I gathered, if you guys do this, I uh, gathered together all the colors that go in this. Uh, I was trying to do like a tapestry that was a part of this puzzle. It was a nightmare uh, because even the puzzle box doesn't help you. All those little things in the tapestry, you're like, this, the puzzle box is no help to me. So then you're just fitting everything trying to make it work. But in the midst of that, I'm thinking, you know, life, I think, sometimes is like this puzzle. Like, like nobody gives you clear instruction on how to be the kid that you need to be when you're born into this, how to be the son or daughter that you're supposed to be, or as you mature up, how to be the student you're supposed to be, or how you're supposed to do that first job that you get, or how you're supposed to go to college, and who you're supposed to be, and who you're supposed to date, and who you're supposed to marry, uh, or when you do marry, how to be the spouse you're supposed to be, or the parent you're supposed to be. Like, it's just not a lot of clear instruction. I mean, a lot of it, if we want to be honest, we're kind of making up as we go along. Uh, but one thing I did discover is that we do have a box to life. And I think what I would say is that the, the Bible is our box in life, that it's the one that gives perspective, even on the crazy stuff, even trying to figure out what's going on when the puzzle pieces don't make sense. Because it, as you go along in life, at some point, whether young or old, you're going to start asking questions about, is there a God? If there's a God, is he good? If he's good, does he even care about me? Uh, what does he want me to do? What should I be doing? Who am I supposed to be? Like all these questions. Those are all pieces of the puzzle. And I really am convinced that the word of God is what helps it all make sense and fit together, even for the modern issues that we're going through. There's not a modern issue going on right now that the Bible doesn't address. Uh, I guarantee it. You pick any of them, any of the stuff, the AI stuff going on right now, the gender confusion going on, even COVID, like all this stuff, so scripture gives you some definition, some meaning to it. So we're going to turn our attention there. Today we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 30, 1 Samuel chapter 30. The not yet King David and his men are trying to figure out what they're supposed to be doing, how they're supposed to be doing it, where they're supposed to be doing it. And as they're trying to figure out these, these puzzle pieces that don't seem to fit together, they will turn their attention to the right source, and that right source will actually provide for them the information they need. Uh, that is, the Lord will tell them what they need to know. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in 1 Samuel, so i got to catch you back up to speed on where we are. Now, 
for those who are new or those who may be forgotten. So we're uh, in the, the reign of King Saul. So King Saul is the first king of Israel, and he is a horrible king. He's such a bad king that the Lord is like not just going to not continue on with Saul. He's not going to continue on with Saul's line. Because normally what would happen is the king's son would take over. So King Saul has a son named Jonathan. Jonathan should be in line to succeed his father with the throne. But God has already said, no, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I'm going to bypass. Your line is so bad. I'm going to bypass it completely. And I'm going to start over with somebody new, and that's going to be David. And so uh, in the midst of this weird thing, so Saul now, he knows he's going to be replaced, his whole line. And he knows that David's going to be the next king. Uh, and so what he has decided to do is he is going to try to subvert God's plan by killing David. Like he thinks that he can subvert the will of God. Like, when you get to the point where you think, oh, you know what? I bet I can get God to do what I want him to do. <laughs> like, you are already in trouble. Uh, so, and ironically, um, Jonathan and, and David are best friends. And so, Jonathan's already been like, hey, listen, I'm not going to fight you for this. You'll be king. I'll just be your right-hand man. Let, let's do that. Um, so, that's kind of how they're going through in life trying to figure this thing out. Now, David knows, though, even though he's been successful, every time King Saul's tried to kill him, not only has he been successful, God has turned the tables around. Uh, David's had the upper hand every time. But David's a righteous man, and he's not going to lift his hand against who he believes God has anointed for leadership in Israel. And, uh, but he did come to this conclusion. He's like, if I keep showing up around Saul and Saul keeps showing up around me, one day he's going to kill me. So I just need to leave. And so he goes and he hides in the country of one of their enemies. He goes to Philistia and he hides among the Philistines. So he goes to Gath, uh, which is a city in Philistia. He goes to the king, Achish, uh, and he says to Achish, listen, I know I'm an Israelite, but I have fallen out of favor with my king, and I will serve you if you'll have me. And Achish is like, you got to be kidding me. This is great. You're like, you were the general of the army of Israel. Like, you're a beast in battle. He showed up you know, with hundreds of fighting men. In fact, they're going to have 600 men uh, now uh, traveling with them. Uh, but he's also not just the 600. He's got 600 men with their wives and their children. So he is traveling as a, as a town, a village, all in, all in themselves. And so he says to Achish, he's like, well, here's the deal. Like, I shouldn't live in the capital city with you. That's, you know, that's king stuff. I shouldn't be around that. We're a small people from, a, uh, you know, from Israel. Just give us a small town. We'll go live in it. And really what David wants is David wants to be able to come and go from Philistia unobserved by the king. <clears throat> and so he goes and he hides in Ziklag, uh, which is this town that Achish gives him. And so that's kind of the setup. So there, David and his men living in Ziklag, a little bit of distance from the capital city. Um, and now, now we're in the time when the kings are going off to war. And so the Philistines are going to uh, launch a large military campaign against Israel. And so now's a good time to bring up our map. Let's pull our map up here. Uh, so we're in Israel. We're in the southern part of Israel. As you can tell, the Dead Sea is to the east, and uh, to the west is the Mediterranean. And uh, there's Philistia, which was the southwest part of Israel uh, in that day. And so David and his men, now Ziklag, honestly, has kind of been lost in time, but they think it's about that area. Uh, and you'll see that between Ziklag and Aphek, which is to the very north, uh, Gath is in between. And so uh, David and his men will march all the way north to Aphek. So what's happened is the Philistines have decided, let's all gather at our northernmost city. And from there, we will launch an attack into Israel. And so we don't even know how many soldiers it is, but it's a ton of soldiers. They all gather. And I don't know if you can tell from the map, but from Ziklag to Aphek is about 50 miles. Now, I've never served in the military, and so for those that have, thank you very much. You guys are amazing. We wouldn't have this country we do without you. Uh, but they've got a march now. 50 miles, full battle rattle, 
provisions. They got I mean, they got to, they got to do this whole thing. And so here's what happens. So they get there, they show up, they're ready to go. They're ready to go fight their fellow men, Israelites killing Israelites. And David has already said to uh, Achish, you want to see what kind of beast I am on the field? I'm going to show you. And so they get up there. Now they're gathered for battle, but as the other leaders, other Kings uh, of the Philistines are walking around, they see these Israelites and these Israelites are fully armed. And they're like, what are these guys doing here? And so they find out these are uh, with Achish. And so they go to Achish. They're like, dude, what is with these Israelites? He says, all right, here's the deal. This is David. David has been with me like 16 months. And he has been amazing. He's been, he's been good. He's been fighting the Israelites this whole time. He hasn't, but Achish doesn't know that. He's been fighting the Israelites this whole time. He's always been faithful. He hasn't done anything against us Philistines. Uh, and he says he's going to go to battle. So I'm going to take him to battle as, as one of my champions. And the other kings are like, no, you're not. <laughs> he is not. Like, and Achish maybe forgotten some history. There was a time when the Philistines went to battle against the Israelites, and they had with them Israelites who were servants, slaves. They were, they were cooks. They were armor bearers. Uh, they went to war with them, and in the midst of a battle against Israel, all of those servants turned on the Philistines, took up arms, and began to attack them from inside the camp. And that was like cooks and slaves. I mean, like, let alone, these are seasoned warriors who have a long history of brutality and success. Uh, David was a beast on the battlefield. And so these guys are like, no, there's no way. We're going to get out in that battle, and then he'll be stabbing us in the back. You need to send him home right away. And so he comes to David, and he's like, hey, listen, David, I, I believe in you. I trust you. I don't think you'd do anything bad to us. But these other, these other kings, these other nobles, they're not going to let you. So you've got to go back home to Ziklag. And David protests. He's like, man, like, haven't I always been a man of character? Haven't I shown you I can be trusted? Achish is like, yeah, 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 the whole time. Absolutely. But they don't want you, so you got to go back. So David gathers up his men, and then they march back. Now, they marched 50 miles up, carried all their gear. They get there. As soon as they get there, you're not going to battle with us. Head home. So they, they have marched now 100 miles on foot in a short period of time. We don't know exactly how long, but we do know the trek back was about three days. So these guys are smoked. Now, as they begin to head back home, they see that there is smoke on the horizon. Not just a little bit, a lot of it in the horizon. Now, these are seasoned warriors. They know that a battle has taken place. And so the closer they get to home, that, like the equivalent would be, and, and may this never happen to you, the equivalent would be you come back towards your part of town. As you're coming back towards your part of town, towards your neighborhood, you see smoke rising up in your neighborhood, and you think, oh, my goodness, somebody's house is on fire. And the further you get into your neighborhood, you're like, ooh, somebody's house near us is on fire. Then you get to your street, and you're like, ooh, somebody's house on our street is on fire. And then when you pull up, it's not just your, your house is gone, down to cinders. They're, they're just there putting out the, the cinders. They're, there's nothing left. I mean, the, the devastation you would feel, that's what they're feeling right now because they pull up home and something horrible has happened. All right, chapter 30, let's start digging into our story. Now, when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because of all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. 
All right, so um, now we're gonna see a picture of the providence of God, the providence of God. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the term providence, so let me tell you what providence is. Providence is the often unseen hand of God working in the favor of his people. That's what providence is. Providence is the often unseen hand of God working on behalf of his people. You're gonna see that throughout this passage. So here is David now, he's returning home. Now we've already seen providence in that. Whether or not David was gonna go to battle and whether or not David was gonna strike down his fellow Israelites, he doesn't have to now. And so now he was never pushed to the point where he'd have to attack the Israelites, which is great because God wants him to be king. And it's going to be really hard to vie for king when you have a history of killing Israelites, right? Like, listen, I know I killed some of your family. Sorry about that, but I should be your king. Like that didn't sell well. Uh, And then God spared that whole thing by showing him his providence. Now, when they return home, the Amalekites, the Amalekites are horrible people. They're a historic enemy of Israel. In fact, David had been fighting them on the side. Like Achish would be like, hey, where are you guys going? I notice you're heading out to battle or you're coming back from battle and you're carrying a lot of stuff. And David would say, oh, we've been out fighting the Israelites. And Achish is like, hey, that's great. That means they're going to hate you. And all the more, you're going to be a Philistine. Uh, but David was lying. He was, he was fighting the Amalekites as, as well as other enemies. But the Amalekites are also the same group of people that got Saul into trouble because all the way back in chapter 15, God had told him, wipe them out, and Saul did not, which makes me actually wonder if we would even have chapter 30 if Saul had fulfilled what he was supposed to do. Either way, um, this is the Amalekites, and uh, they just saw it as an opportunity. They knew all the Philistines are at war, and if all the Philistines are at war, there's no men at home taking care of things. And if there's no men at home, we show up with some soldiers, and we'll be able to uh, gut the, the Philistines. And so they raid not just the Philistines, but all of the Negev, which is the southern part of Israel. They hit all those towns there. Now, it says they killed no one. Now, there's probably a number of reasons for kidnapping uh, your enemies. Um, like, one would be slave labor. Right? It's just the idea that let's make them do the jobs we don't want to do. Uh, that would be one thing. Another would be wives. You know, you got all these women around there, and you're thinking, hey, we need, to, we need to move forward as a population, and we'll take these women, and we'll make them our wives, and then we'll have kids uh, with them. Uh, that was something else they were thinking. But I think something else that's going on here is providence. Providence, the unseen hand of God working on behalf of his people. That's what's going on here, is that the lives have been preserved of these um, women and children because God has a plan that, that nobody understands yet. But, but here we are talking about, the men are talking about stoning David. Like they've been with David through everything and they're fierce warriors, but their hearts are just broken. And I'm gonna be honest with you, I get a little bit of it, I do. Like there's probably, when David's not around, these guys are sitting over here talking and they're having this conversation. What are we even doing here? Why are we in Philistia? Why are we fighting battles? Why are we lying about what we're doing? Why aren't we in Israel? Why haven't we killed Saul? That jerk has tried to kill David several times. Like, why? Like, like all these why questions. And finally, to the breaking point, like, I come home, all my stuff is gone, my house is burned to the ground, and my wife and my kids are gone. Like, have you ever thought this? Let me talk to people more mature in life a little bit. Have you ever thought that maybe this generation of younger people is getting a little soft? All right, so here, now let me pause. Let me talk to younger people for a second. So if you're sitting there going, hey, okay, listen, that's what older people do. Like when I was younger, they all mocked our generation, made fun of us. Now we lead the church. So, uh, uh, and it's gonna be the same for you. Like you're, you're gonna be like, why is everybody down on us? Then you're gonna get older and go like, what is wrong with the next generation? It's just what we do. But let me talk about this for a second. So in, in our day and age, like the worst thing you have to worry about is being attacked on social media, right? And you could be like, it can hurt your feelings all you want, but like, it's just hurting your feelings. Uh, in this day and age, you could show up, all your stuff is gone, your family's been kidnapped. You would go to the local people and go, 
they came in, they destroyed everything, they took my family, they kidnapped my family. And people be like, dang, that stinks, man. Like, there's no authority you go to. There's no policeman going, we'll figure this out. There's no lawyer going, well, we'll, you know, nothing. You either take care of your, yourself or you're just out your stuff and your family. So like, just for some perspective, this was a brutal world that they lived in. And yet, even in the midst of the brutality, we see the providence of God, the often unseen hand of God working on behalf of his people. That's what we see. Uh, and, and then don't miss the last part. It says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Now, how did David strengthen himself? Unfortunately, there aren't the details I would like, but I think we could come to some understanding of how he would interact with it. Like, how, how would he be strengthened in the Lord? Now, I think there's a few things he would think about. One, I think he would think about the character of God. Like, has, hasn't God always taken care of me? Isn't, isn't God good? Hasn't he always been good? I think he would reflect on that. Like, okay, God's character is not in question here. Or what about the word of God? The things that God has said, the promises that God has made. Haven't all of them come true? Hasn't he always been faithful to what he has said? Yeah, the, the problem we have in life is we often try to blame God for the things that man does. Like, it's not God's fault. We broke the world, right? That's, that's what God's just trying to fix it. And, uh, and he has to work with us turkeys to do it. Um, but that's what's going on. And so David doesn't blame God. He's seeking strength from God. So then we see in verse seven this. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. So I don't know if you remember Abiathar. So this goes back to part of the history and another reason why Saul was such a jerk. So Saul got mad at David. And so what he decided to do to get back at David was to execute all the priests of God. How would you like that on your resume before the judgment of God? <laughs> you show up for judgment and like, well, I killed all your religious leaders. Like, ooh, that is going to be so. In fact, maybe though, maybe you'd like to stand behind that guy in judgment because how bad is it going to be for you? I mean, you know, uh, heaven doesn't work that way, by the way. But uh, if it did, you know. So here's this guy. He's going up there. He's got all this bad stuff that he has done. He has killed almost everybody. One guy got away, Abiathar. And Abiathar runs back, and he's now with David. And so uh, David says to him, he says, listen, I'm so distraught here. I've been seeking the Lord, but I need your help now. I want you to bring me the ephod. So the ephod is like this garment of jewels that they would wear over their robes. And, uh, and history, unfortunately, has lost some of this. So we, we have descriptions of how it worked, but we don't know actually how it worked. So in the ephod was a little pocket. And in this pocket were these two stones, uh, this Urim and Thummim or Urim and Thummim. And uh, these stones would help them understand the will of God. And so what they would do is, somebody would come up like, I, like David, uh, and he actually asked specific questions. Verse 8, David inquired of the Lord, shall I pursue after this band, this band of mercenaries, shall I overtake them? So, that, so, so that's what he's asking. Should I go attack him? And then am I going to win? If we go fight him, am I going to win? And so the priest consults the Lord. Hey, Lord, we need you to answer us here. And then he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out either a stone or a couple of the stones. <laughs> I don't know how it works. Uh, he rolls a 20. Uh, and then he says, yeah, um, yeah, you're going to, God says, do it. You're going to succeed. You're going to overcome him. And, uh, and so however that worked. Now, before I move forward, that is not how we discern the will of God today. Just in case anybody's curious. I don't want you to take two stones outside and be like, God, I'm going to throw these in the air. And whichever one lands closest to whatever, that's your, that is not, that, now you're getting into witchcraft. That's, God doesn't do that today. Just read the Bible. Um, yeah, so, but in that day and age, it was cool. So God answers him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out and the 600 men who were with him, and they came to the brook Bezor 
where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued. He and 400 men, 200 stayed behind. They were too exhausted to cross the brook uh, Bezor. So uh, now we're into a practical reality. David's been traveling with these 600 guys. They've just traveled 100 miles, and now they've got to track down this army that has just kidnapped their families, taken all their stuff. Uh, and they come to this brook, and it's a, a you know, I guess it's a body of water, and there's a few guys there who are just like, you know, David, we're exhausted, brother. Like, we can't, we can't go. I'm like, I know. It's my family. I get it. I cannot march a step further. And so David pauses. Hey, anybody else feel the same way? And a third of his army is like, yeah, dude, we're smoked. And he's like, all right, I'll tell you what, y'all 200 stay, and us other 400 will go, and we'll take care of business. So uh, that's an interesting moment to me, where you're about ready to go do this, and your kids, your stuff's been taken, and a third of people stay uh, behind. But that's, that's what happens. So anyway, uh, I get to verse 11. So they found an Egyptian in the open country, and they brought him to David. And they gave him bread, and he ate, and they gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, to whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. When he had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. All right, again, this is a, that's a brutal time in history. It's a brutal time in American history. Uh, slaves are just property. And so they're going along, and this slave gets sick, and the master, rather than deal with it or try to nurse him back to health, is just like, hey, dude, you're sick. I can't deal with you anymore. You're going to have to stay here in the desert and just die. I'll get somebody else later. And he just leaves him. I mean, can you imagine? Like, and I don't know how sick he was. It was sick enough that he was going to be left behind. He didn't have a cold. Uh, and, you know, we've kind of been there. I don't, have you ever had the flu? Like, I had the flu a number of years ago, and I got so sick during the flu. There was literally a time where I was like, I just want to be dead. I just wish I was dead. Isn't it funny how you get there sometimes? You're like, I just wish I was dead. And then you get better a few days later, and you're like, what was I thinking? Oh, my gosh. Uh, but, yeah, you just get your body gets wrecked, your mind gets wrecked. Uh, and so this guy, he's in that state. They're like, oh, gosh, I just feel horrible. And they're like, okay, now we're going to abandon you. So now nobody's bringing you a glass of water. Nobody's tucking you in. Nobody's bringing you a sandwich. You are just abandoned in the desert to die. And yet, the providence of God the often unseen hand of God that works for the favor of his people. So here's the thing. The Egyptian, he's not, a, he's not a believer in the Lord. He's not following the Lord, but David is. And one of the things I've noticed about how God blesses his people is that the blessing God pours on his people leaks onto the people around them, whether they love the Lord or not. And so there are others who benefit when God blesses us. And this Egyptian is one of those people that because God's doing something wonderful in the life of David and providing for David, protecting David uh, and protecting his family, this Egyptian gets caught up in it. And so he gets to receive some of the blessing. Now, I don't think that David is sparing his life because David is a very gracious individual. David's a fierce warrior and to be fair, quite ruthless. Uh, so I could totally see him just stabbing this guy in the spot, but he needs him. And David is a man of honor, even in the, in, the, in the midst of warfare. And so he says, hey, I need your help. And he says, I'll help you, but swear to me you won't kill me. Swear by your God you won't kill me. And David's like, I'll make that deal with you. And so he provides. So then we get to verse 16. And when he had taken him down, behold, 
They were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. All right, I'm gonna pause here for a moment. I need to talk to my men for just a second. Uh, when you get married, you have a wife and you have children. There's, there's this protective nature that God, he had it in you, but it, it is born in full when you get married and then when you have children. That if I, if I ever felt that there was a threat to my wife, to her well-being, I would step forth. If I ever felt there was a threat to my kids, I would step forth. But, but there's something else in the midst of this. Like, it's not just that I would intervene. If you threaten my wife or my kids, there is a scary aggression and anger in the heart of men that I think God put there to protect those you love. Now, it's gotta be controlled, so we don't wanna be out of control. But you threaten my wife, you threaten my kids, you will see a side of me you have never seen before. And here's this, these guys, they come, they creep over the ledge, they look, and there is their families, their wives and their kids, terrified, probably in chains, uh, and surrounded by these people who are just partying, who have just, you know, ruined the valley, have stolen from everybody, have kidnapped all these people, and they're dancing, and they're drunk, and they're partying, and you're up there looking at them. Now, it is one thing if you or I get, get angry at somebody and go to challenge them. I want to remind you, these are seasoned warriors. Like, they're good at killing, and they have had a lot of experience at it. And these are now 400 husbands and dads who see what those guys have done. What kind of John Wick kind of thing is about to happen <laughs> on that valley? I mean, it is about to get so ugly there, they couldn't make a movie about it, and I wish they would. Like, this is one I would watch. And so you've got 400 dads who are like, let's go. And when they come over with that rage and those swords and their screams coming down the valley, it's so wicked, people run for their lives. So let's just, let's see what happens here. Verse 17. Uh, well, let's come back. So, uh, and when he had taken them down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating, drinking, dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether great, uh, small or great, sons or daughters spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds and the people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So David and his men come down like a raging fire. They consume everything there. Like I'm wondering how many people are in this battle. If 400 fled on camels, how many other were in the valley? And you know what? They wouldn't care. Those, those guys would not care. A dad in a rage to defend his kids who've been kidnapped I mean, if they had had guns, and they didn't, they had swords, but if they had had guns, bullets mean nothing. Somebody could point a gun at you, even be shooting you with, you'd be on top of them beating them with that gun, uh, no matter how many bullets were in you. That's just the rage of a dad uh, to protect his family. Like, you may go down, but your, your family's gonna be delivered. Like, that's how it's gonna go down. You got 400 seasoned warriors going sword to sword. Those guys didn't stand a, a chance. The emotion, the anger, the wrath that those guys brought with them, God gave them such great, incredible victory. But then here's something else. When it was over, remember they had raided the whole Negev 
And so they had the spoils of the Negev. So when David defeats them all, it's not just they recovered their stuff. They have tons of loot, tons of livestock. Like they are loaded now. Uh, so David comes out of all that with this spoil. Verse 21. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among them who had gone with David said, because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, you shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So David comes back and he greets them. And he greets them kindly to let them know that like, hey, we're, we're okay, guys. Um, but there's a contrast between the way worldly people think and godly people think. And it's really illustrated here. So David understands that there's a difference between capacity and character. Like these guys who stayed behind, they're they're guys of good character. They just didn't have the capacity to go forward. That's very different from somebody who has the capacity but no character. And so because David recognizes that, he's like, no, guys, that's, that's not what we're going to do. Those who stay behind, they get a part of the, the loot. They get to share in it. Um, and we see that's a principle that is even lived out uh, to this day. So this last year, August the 13th, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway during the Verizon 200 at the Brickyard, the number 34 car, Michael McDowell, won the race. Now, I do not presume that you all are NASCAR fans, but welcome to my world. So my son, as you know, works for that team. He's a road mechanic for that team. And all sorts of people travel with that team. And it was such a joy to this dad to see my son on NBC kissing the bricks at the winning uh, uh, part of the, the brickyard with the driver there, his family, and my son and the other crew. So uh, when the driver wins, um, he gets a big old fat ring. You've probably seen him before at other uh, events where people win these big things, get a big old fat ring. But not just the driver gets it, everybody that goes with the team gets the ring. And so my son has this big old fat ring for winning the, uh, the Indy uh, with his driver. Uh, but so here's the thing though, it's not just those guys, there's also a shop in Mooresville. And so the shop in Mooresville, though, that's filled with fabricators and, and uh, parts cleaners, uh, guys who rebuild shocks, uh, all sorts of people. They also get rings. So the thought is this. This guy doesn't get to hold up the trophy unless all of us do our jobs. And so this idea that, like, well, only certain of us. Like, dude, listen, David is not who he is if not for all of the people there. In fact, I do wonder this. Like, even in heaven, I've been in heaven. Like, I think... If I could, let me just go off the rails for a second. Like, I do wonder this. Like, if people look at the church, St. Hills Community Church, and you think at the end of time, if the, the church is judged, let's say rewards are given out by God, you might think, well, it'll be, you know, the, the pastor up there or other ministry staff there up there, like God will be looking. I don't think that's how it works. I think when it comes to how God would view Sand Hills Community Church, it's all of us together. And if there's a reward that comes for any faithfulness in this church, it is one we all share and share alike. Because that's how, that's how God, I think, does his thing. And that's what David's saying. It's like, no, that's not how it works. In fact, he even gives God the credit. God gave us this victory. We're not going to do that. We're going to share with everybody. That's, that's how we should do it. That's how godly people do it. And then even in verse 26, it says, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. 
And then it goes on to describe all the people that he sent it to. And, and so why the elders of Judah? Well, that's his line. David comes from the line of Judah. In fact, you may have heard this reference. Uh, let me take you to Revelation chapter 5, verse 5. It says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who's that? That's Jesus. <laughs> it's a great, safe answer in church. Uh, it's Jesus. Uh, the root of David, meaning the descendant of David. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so there's a sense in which all of this, don't forget, when we're studying the Old Testament, it's always pointing towards what God is doing. David is a part of the line that will produce Christ, uh, and now that Jesus will be called the line of the tribe of Judah. So Judah is his tribe. He sends all uh, gifts to them saying, hey, I've got, received all the spoil. I'm going to share with you guys. Uh, no surprise that those will be the guys who ultimately anoint him as king. So when I look at this, then I'm always asking, what is it we're learning? Well, I'll tell you exactly what you're learning today. The lesson learned today is providence, providence. The often unseen hand of God that works for the favor of his people. That's what you're seeing here. Um, the, the problem with us as we go through life is it is so easy to think God doesn't care. But I shared a phrase a couple of weeks ago. I want to bring it back out again. We must not mistake the appearance of absence for the absence of presence. All right, when it comes to the Lord, we must not mistake the appearance of absence as the absence of presence. Like God is here. And all of those pieces you're wrestling with, why am I going through this? Why are they doing this? Why is this not going right? Why don't I have what I need? Why are we suffering? Like all these, all these puzzle pieces, they only make sense when we turn to the Lord to get the bigger picture of what's going on. And so we want to remember that God is intimately involved. And when we are weak, we do like David. We turn to the Lord for our strength. We reflect upon his word. We reflect upon his promises. We reflect upon his character. And as we reflect on all of those things, we realize consistently, always, God is good, God is good, God is good. We can trust him. And I want to remind you of this, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Lord, this is uh, such a reminder that we need. It is so easy to get discouraged in life. It is so easy to get discouraged with all the stuff that comes against us seemingly all the time. And we feel so small in a world that seems out of control. And though we think things should be different, we're almost powerless to change the thoughts of the world. And so, Lord, may it be that as we just find our comfort in you, that we're reminded, seeking you in your truth, that you've already explained to us kind of how this thing works, how people are wired, what your plan is, how the world's going to go, but ultimately that you fix it all in the blink of an eye. So Jesus, please hear afresh from us today. We believe in you. We believe you are the king of the universe. You, we believe that you're our savior who died on a cross for our sins. We believe that you walked out of that tomb, satisfying the wrath of God once and for all so that those who believe in you would find forgiveness in this life and paradise in the life to come. Lord, we don't always understand the pieces you give us in life, but we understand that you are the author of this puzzle and we can trust you in your holy name. Amen.